1: tony and josh from ggch of course trip fuller and homebrewed christianity and a whole grip of others and you can use the promo code return of yhp all one word for 25 dollars off your ticket prices go up starting june 1st that link will be in the notes i hope to see a bunch of you guys there in october it was a serious highlight of last year for me Bonnie Christian, you might be the first guest to hit your fourth appearance on You Have Permission.
0: All right. uh, I'll take it.
1: I'd have to think about it. I'd have to think about it. But you got two early ones in because Mm -hmm. of your book, A Flexible Faith. We talked about atonement theories and we talked Mm -hmm. about biblical inerrancy. And then later you came back with your book from last year, Untrustworthy, about our knowledge or epistemological crisis, which uh, pretty clearly... Here in 2023, still a problem.
0: Yeah, who who could have predicted?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to just do one little note on the atonement theories because it is one of the most popular episodes of the show. And it was like episode number six. Uh, Now we're up in the 200s or something. But this is what I wanted to tell you. And I'm curious if you get something similar from that chapter in the book. I don't think I could count how many times someone has said to me, either about that episode in particular or Mm -hmm. just like in person talking at a birthday party or something. One of the biggest like head explosion emoji moments for them in their life of faith, change and whatever was simply acknowledging knowing that there were more than one. There was more than one atonement theory. Mm -hmm. Have you, have people told that to you as well?
0: I've had similar conversations and I would say, I don't know that I had like a sort of like a single moment of realization, but if I could sort of compress that realization um in my own life, I would say, yeah, it was a it was a big deal for me, too. I think it I think it's rightfully a big deal. And I'm sure I'm repeating myself in that episode at this point. But I think it's a shame that that we this is something we've neglected and I don't really understand why we have neglected it that way and why we've sort of gotten sloppy in our language around it to the point where you'll have multiple metaphors going in like one hymn.
1: I love the the story that Tony Jones has told on the show and that I've repeated, which is when he talked to John Piper and John Piper was like, people need one story to rally around. Mm. And if you give them five atonement theories, they won't know what to do with it. I think that John Piper is probably... Right in his Mm -hmm. socio, you know, whatever, like his social psychological analysis of the situation Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. churches that emphasize the robustness of various options like are smaller. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that's I bet that's true. Yeah, Uh, it's also not true. Sounds right. (laughs) Yeah, it's 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 accurate of what people are like, but it Mm -hmm. but it's not committed to accuracy of teaching, which is a real that's a real tension.
0: Yeah. I mean, I also think there's a big difference between saying like, look, this is how our church talks about this. This is what we're teaching here. This is what you're going to hear. You know, there are other ways that Christians have historically understood this. If this is something that troubles you, come talk to me about it. Like, mm-hmm. I think that I would look on that quite differently and, and understand the desire to, you know, really talk about a, a, the single interpretation that you think is most correct without, you know, running through all the options every Sunday or whatever. But I think that's different from just not telling folks.
1: Agreed. I really, I really like that approach. I think that's responsible. Okay, but we're not here to talk about atonement theories. We are here to talk about just this kind of interesting. So you, you posted. You have a Substack now, which I subscribe I to. Who doesn't? <laughs> Who doesn't have one? But yours is good. Um, by the way, the links to all three of those previous episodes will be in the show notes, as well as a link to to your Substack if people want to sign up. But you posted something really interesting about a month, month and a half ago. And it was like on being a female Christian writer who's not a, quote, female Christian writer, unquote. And you quote this guy, Brad East, who wrote a really good article about basically four tiers for like in Christian publishing, there are sort of four types of book that get put out there. And it's based on the audience, right? So from Mm -hmm. scholarly all the way down to universal, anybody can read this. And then there's kind of two subcategories in between. And I thought it'd be interesting to talk about that because, you know, listeners of this show and myself too, I mean, I get emails as the host of the show, but even listeners, we get pitched books all the time Mm -hmm. from Mm -hmm. guests on episodes we listen to. We might see ads in our social media timelines. We certainly see books on the shelf if we're at a bookstore. Some of our churches have bookstores in the lobby, right? And I just think it's kind of helpful anytime we can peek a little bit behind the curtain so people can get a better sense of what's being sold to them, not necessarily Mm -hmm. in a, in a negative way, just Mm -hmm. how is this being packaged such that people are trying to find the right consumer for the right product kind of a thing. So we'll talk about that, but then there's this really interesting thing he goes into about quote, female Christian writers, unquote. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of probably where we'll spend most of our time. But can we start by talking about those, those four tiers Briefly, So uh, the first is Universal. These are books that are supposedly for everyone. Can you give us an example, sort of like unpack that a little bit? Obviously it was Brad's article, mm-hmm. but I think you understood it enough to to sort of speak on it.
0: Yeah, definitely. And, and Brad is a great writer. He just wrote a piece for me at Christian B today. So definitely recommend people check him out as well. Sweet. Um, but so his, his first tier, which he calls Universal, this is, it's often very like inspiro- inspirational, devotional, I think there's memoir in here. And there's like Bible study and church curriculum. You know, he he says you would you would find this potentially even like at the airport. Um, and so it's very big name authors. People like, you know, on the more substantive end, I would say Beth Moore, on maybe the less substantive end, uh Joel Osteen. Um, and really? many people in between, mega church pastors, um, Instagram influencers, the kind of people who have Followings of of millions.
1: Former football players or models or actors, stuff like that. Yeah. The
0: kind of, I would say almost any Christian book that puts a picture of the author on the cover is probably going to be in this category, right? Because you're buying (laughs) it about, it's, it's about them as a personality as much yeah. as it is about the book. And I, I don't say that in, in criticism. I mean, these books are, are very popular. Um, they influence far more people than I will ever influence. Um, mm-hmm. Like they, they make a huge difference in Christian culture and they tend to be not like stridently ideological. Obviously you can find exceptions to that, but I think for the most part, they're aimed at, at yeah, a, a universal, a very broad audience. That means... That affects both the, the theology that's being communicated, um, but also, you know, it's, it's going to be communicated at a, at a pretty accessible level. There's going to be a lot of anecdote. There's going to be a lot of like practical application stuff. And I believe he touches on this some, but it's, it's the sort of thing that someone like East or, or someone like me, frankly, tends to not be aware of. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say to agree, that's like to a degree that's that's to our detriment, because even if we're not personally reading this stuff and it doesn't have a lot of appeal to us, um, you know, many, many people probably like in our congregations, this is what they're reading. It
1: is like the, in TV, the succession versus Yellowstone distinction. Mm. You know, all the TV writers and podcasters and culture critics for all the major publications You know, when Succession was on, especially in its final season, like every think piece is about Succession, every uh, and that's kind of my personal hobby is like listening and reading about uh, movies and TV. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, Yellowstone, you know, an average season of Yellowstone is 10 times the viewership of Succession Mm -hmm. or 15 times or Mm -hmm. some insane amount like that. And it gets a tenth of the press Mm -hmm. because it's not centered on kind of uh, in in that case, it's not centered on like urban elite sort of coastal Mm -hmm. progressive culture, Mm -hmm. um, which is where most of those kind of higher brow publications and, and stuff exist. That's a little bit more of a urban rural split. In this case, I think it's a bit more of like an education difference. Right. So it's but but there's some overlap there where it's like, yeah, people with high school degrees are like th- there's a lot of those Americans, yeah. and and they do buy and read books. You yeah. know, it's like I also think you, you mentioned like it's really influential in the Christian world. This is also just a type of book in the non-Christian world, right? I mean, like mm-hmm. any celebrity self-help memoir, stuff. Yeah. self-help stuff, celebrity right?
0: memoirs,
1: yeah, yeah, like the like the non the non sort of psychologically robust self-help stuff. The kind mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. you know, frankly, I w- I would say the more fad. Self-help mm-hmm. stuff is probably more in this category. But so maybe we'll, let's let's use that to slide into the next tier, which is popular. So what distinguishes a popular book from a universal book?
0: Yeah, so Brad says that the audience is college-educated Christians who enjoy reading to learn more about their faith. Um, mm-hmm. And his examples are people like T. Harrison Warren, N.T. Wright, Jamar Tisby, Tara Isabella Burton, these types of folks – it's people who probably do have a college degree who are reading this. They don't right. have most likely a seminary degree. Um, they, they may not know all of the jargon. So words are going to have to be defined. Like you're not going to just break out eschatological without explaining what that means. Right. Um, but it does tend to be, you know, more in depth. It assumes a certain familiarity with sort of basic Christian doctrine. And is taking you kind of to like that, that 201 level of, of let's think about this in a, a more explicit way is, is asking a bit more of the reader.
1: Yeah. Pete ends The Sin of Certainty is, is probably in that category. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, some of that may be leaning into the next one, which is, which is going to be Highbrow. Uh, this is where I try to live mm-hmm. with my podcast. And I think some episodes live in this space. Generally, I think of my average listener as a college educated listener. I know that's not true of everybody who listens, but like someone who can follow along and understand as long as we're defining terms, explaining Mm -hmm. names Mm -hmm. of thinkers as we go kind of a thing. But I like what you said or what he said, like it's for someone who wants to learn more about Mm -hmm. their faith or in this case, you know, learn more about psychology and religion or whatever. It's like I think of you have permission as. In my own terms, it's a morning commute listen, not an Hmm. evening commute listen an evening commute listen is like, I don't know, 49ers sports talk or talk about movies or something. Morning is like, all right, I got I'll throw some NPR on. I've got a little I got brain space here or maybe on a lunch break or something like that. And so you were saying that your book, A Flexible Faith, which we covered in those first two episodes, that was pretty, pretty squarely in that popular category.
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, sort of the whole conceit of the book is is uh is in this mode of, you know, explaining terms and, and saying like let's get into what are the the options here, what are the what is the history here, so yeah. that you can learn more about your faith.
1: Yeah. And then your your next book, Untrustworthy, you think is kind of straddling the popular and then highbrow, this next one. So mm-hmm. I think we all probably understand the fourth tier scholarly. That are these yeah. are academic works. Written for an academic audience that if you if you you know, I guess you can follow all the footnotes and stuff. But if you didn't go to grad school or if you're not kind of a really significant close reader, the scholarly stuff is going to be is just going to feel like reference material to you. Yeah. But highbrow is this kind of in between space. Tell us about that.
0: Yeah. So he, the East lists the audience as seminarians, pastors, scholars, literary types, lay intellectuals. Yeah. And there is, there's, you know, multiple points of overlap in his examples of authors who who fall in this category. So like he has C.S. Lewis, uh, Tara Isabella Burton, N.T. Wright, all of those in both categories. I think James mm-hmm. K. A. Smith also in both. But I, our authors can straddle, I think, insofar as they can write in different modes. Right. Um, and it is it it's a little bit maybe more nebulous than the the other three but i think it is a different mode it's the totally. sort of thing where you you know you you can use more technical words without necessarily defining them you can assume that your reader kind of knows who uh the big names are maybe not the lesser names but the yeah. big names East writes, a a lay reader without formal expertise, but who has the time, energy, and interest enough to devote themselves to understanding a book written with style, but about dense matters. So I, I think in many cases, this books in this category might be addressing things that are more often in the scholarly realm, but doing so in a more accessible way. And so the reason why I said that untrustworthy, I think, sort of tilts this way or straddles the line between two and three between popular and and highbrow, is is chiefly about the the explicit discussion of epistemology, right? Like, I think a a purely level two version of untrustworthy would have just kept that knowledge crisis language from the subtitle and not gotten into, like, okay, what is epistemology and and why should you know about this unknown in the, you know, sort of general public sphere of philosophy.
1: So then I, I think of some episodes of this show certainly end up in the highbrow, uh, area. Mm-hmm. I definitely try and keep them from straight the straight scholarly arena. And there might not be mm-hmm. a direct correlation between sort of books and podcasts, but I, I think it's a pretty straightforward line to draw. I think most of the time I listen to Homebrew Christianity, my buddy Tripp's show, mm-hmm. that's more in the highbrow, occasionally scholarly area. But with clients even, I have to make this decision kind of in the moment often that you had to make with untrustworthy where you had to go, you know what, I think I do need to sort of dig in a bit deeper to Mm -hmm. epistemology, to the study of knowledge in order to kind of motivate my argument here and and explain the situation. And I'm often thinking with clients, okay, how much do I need, how much do they need to know about, for instance, the cognitive model Mm -hmm. for me to explain what we're going to be doing here with cognitive behavioral therapy? Yeah. And I'm always kind of I'm messing around with sort of how much information to put in there and how much to leave out. Sometimes I'll tailor that for a client. I, I will certainly tailor things like how much reading or homework to give certain mm-hmm. clients based on kind of what it seems as we try that out. How much do they do? Do they re- do they read? Do they only listen to stuff? Mm-hmm. Will they read an article versus a chapter of a book? Or you know, so it's all those things are. Probably like a little bit inside baseball for for communicators like mm-hmm. like you and I, but I find that stuff interesting and I think it has a real, it's a really important lens to consider if you are trying to work for the public good, mm-hmm. even if that's one person at a time in the therapy room or if it's listeners or readers, but you got to think about what, where people are at and what they can handle and what they need to know. And you shouldn't just throw the kitchen sink at every project.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there's an impulse among um, writerly types and especially the more academically inclined you are yourself to think like more is better. And why should I not go into this detail? And the answer is like, well, because in some cases you're making the perfect the enemy of the good. And for some people, going into that detail is not going to result in them learning more. It's going to result in them just putting down the whole book and saying, like, I don't have time for this.
1: What about with journalism or editing is there a difference there in terms of how you think about this stuff versus writing your own books? That's, that's kind of where we are kind of crossing over into that epistemology mm-hmm. area there, yeah. right? Of like, what do you need to explain? Like, I don't know, is, is there any sort of different gloss for those roles that you also fill as a part of your job?
0: I mean, I, I think you could make a similar taxonomy of like outlets, Right something like say the Atlantic is probably like a a 2.5, like straddling the line between popular and highbrow. I'd put something like maybe Harper's all the way up in highbrow. So you can, you know, I I would put Christianity Today where I'm full-time there now. I would put that also like 2.5 where we're explicitly thinking about a lot of our readers being not necessarily just people in ministry, but the sort of lay congregant who leads the small group, right? Like that is realistically the kind of people who are coming to us. And so, yeah, I think there's a similar, in journalism, there's a similar thing of having to think about your audience. Um, it doesn't always, it doesn't play out the exact same way, of course, just, and one of the biggest differences there is the different timescales um, of books versus articles, right? Like a, an article has a lifespan of three days, maybe. Um, a book hopefully has years in it. Um, and so that makes a big difference um, in terms of the, the amount of depth that you can go into in any given space. And so probably you have to imagine that You know, if you're writing an article for a given audience, it's going to be less in depth most of the time, right, than a book written for that same audience. So there are differences, but I I think the sort of overarching concern is the same. And as an editor on that side of things, something that you, you never want from a writer is sort of the delusional belief that they are writing for everyone. Obviously, with these this universal tier of books, there's sort of a sense in which that is true. Even there, though, I think you know if you're a Christian writing a book for Christians, there's some limitation. But there's a few people for that's true. But for the vast, vast majority of us, you're not writing for everyone, and you need mm-hmm. to think much more specifically about like who am I actually writing for, and how does that affect how I'm phrasing this? Um, because you can cover all the same facts and the same topic and if it's two, two different audiences it's going to be very very different article in the end or book and I mean yeah one of the, the first one of the things that I remember most clearly when I first started working on my book proposal for A Flexible Faith years ago was it is like everything you read about how to do a book proposal it's drilled into you over and over again do not write that your book is for everyone because yeah. that's like automatic rejection mm-hmm.
1: let's pivot into this female Christian writer bit. And then I want to try and connect the two because I think, especially in the Christian publishing industry, and I imagine this is equally true for Christian podcasting, maybe like other forms of influencer and stuff. I, I I wonder what you think about journalism article Mm. writing, sort of that as maybe a, I'm not sure where it lands there. But certainly I see it in books and podcasts and other things. I'll I'll quote from Brad here. There's a certain perception of what it means to be a, quote, female Christian writer who, quote, writes for a read female popular audience. This isn't just a genre. It's a whole sensibility. There are unwritten rules here. You need a social media presence. You need to interact with your fans. You need pictures and not just of you, but of your family. Ideally, your beautiful children. You need to, quote, let people in. If you don't, is anyone really going to buy your books or pay you to speak? So we have a quick list here. I'd like to go through each of them briefly. Social media presence, interaction with fans, family pictures, especially beautiful children, letting people in. Would you add anything else to that list of the female Christian writer, or do you think that Brad got it got it pretty good there?
0: I think he pretty much got it.
1: Okay. So- yeah. Let's just speak very briefly. I'd love to hear your thoughts on each of these. So female Christian writers and their social media presence. Do you think of that differently as someone on the editorial side as well? Like, who are we going to ask to write for us, not just on the
0: authorial side? Hmm. I mean, I would say that no. On the editorial side, when I'm thinking about soliciting freelancers, I would check out everyone's social media presence equally. Okay. Um, both in terms of like just finding out, you know, sort of what their deal is, where they land theologically. Um, and yeah, I mean, unfortunately, looking at the size of their following, um, yeah. I think there's been a flurry of articles in the last couple weeks here about how Facebook and, and Twitter in particular are ceasing to be reliable traffic drivers for, for news sites and, and other uh, journalism outlets. But at this point, that is, is still something that we think about. It's not you know, the deciding factor, it's not the only factor, but it's something you notice. Um, and so I would say for me in that regard, I'm, I'm not looking at men and women differently, but I would not say that, you know, that that's true of everyone. I, I think probably it is still the case that if you're looking sort of holistically at someone's credentials to write a given piece, for a whole number of reasons, it is probably still the case that social media following more often for women is becomes a bigger component of that as opposed to, say, institutional affiliation.
1: Why? why? I, explain that to us, like motivate that from from whoever's perspective it is that's, yeah. that that's important to.
0: I mean, some of it is just like the, the fact of... of what people are doing with their time right i mean we we i think we all know especially thinking about things like instagram which is where a lot of people who women who i would say fall into this quote unquote female christian writer category and and i think this is also true of of People who are not, you know, writing explicitly as Christians, people in more secular or irreligious spaces. Um, but I'll, I'll I'll be talking mostly about Christian stuff. I think Instagram is where a lot of those people have their their big biggest numbers, and it is such a visual medium. And it, I mean, you know how we've all seen how this works, right? Like you post a nice selfie, and maybe your caption is really substantive, right? Um, maybe you are really putting out like really smart good stuff, but the selfie is what catches people's eyes, and it it works for women in a way it doesn't work for men. And you, you just don't, there's just not a lot of dudes out there like posting selfies above their theological thoughts. It's just not how it tends to work in our society. And so it's sort of a strange thing because on the one hand, in the last, I don't know, three, four decades, I think you do have a lot more women like doing theology in public. But concurrently, there's also this rise of like, one way for you to do that is through cultivating this very aesthetic Instagram life, and so it's a strange tension.
1: What about interacting with fans? Like, say a little bit more about why a female Christian writer or public figure, whatever, is supposed to be interact. That that part is like maybe feels sort of the least obvious to me. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe that's because I I don't like thinking of listeners as fans. Uh, maybe mm-hmm. because of my decade in a rock band, and that has a different connotation, but. <laughs> I, I'm not like the best at interacting with people. Kristen yeah. and Josh are are like bugging me to do it more oftentimes. I love getting the feedback, of course, who doesn't mm-hmm. I try to write people back, but like uh the interact like that's that one's like, okay, sure, that's good, but what I'm not sure what the female part of that is i I guess is what I'm saying,
0: yeah. I mean, I think inevitably we're we're stuck in speaking in broad stereotypes here, right? But like think about the heyday of blogging like fifteen years ago, maybe okay. There were, you know, big name Christian bloggers who were women. And I'm usually thinking of like Rachel Holt Evans, you know, she had a right. lively comment section. She would get in there. She would talk mm-hmm. to people. She was talking primarily about the ideas, though. It wasn't really about her life most right. of the time and herself. Um, I mean, to some extent, it was, you know, her theological evolution, but it, it wasn't really about her as a person. Right. I mean, to some extent it was because it was, it was her thoughts that were changing, but it was about the thoughts. And she,
1: I think, unwittingly became like as a person because Mm -hmm. of when she was willing to speak about this stuff, like it became more personal.
0: And because of the her. timing of like social media, I don't think yeah. she set out, though, to become like, no. you know, a personality in the way that we see now with influencers.
1: You know what it's making me think of is actually like <laughs> yeah, I, I mostly think of it in terms of funny videos that are kind of spoofing it. But mm. the celebrity Instagram video that starts with, hey, guys, just wanted to. Blank, blank, blank. Right. Like looking at the camera, that kind of confessional, like Mm -hmm. I I think that reads as interacting with fans. Mm -hmm. I don't see it that way. I see it as posturing and like doing kind of Mm -hmm. thing, but, but I'm sure it probably is for some people, actual interaction. Yeah
0: people develop parasocial relationships with that for sure. They feel like they know that person and that person is talking to them. And, and at first I think, you know, if you really start following someone, I think at first you feel sort of that distance and like, understand they're not really talking to me, but over and over and over again, you know, on Mm -hmm. years on end, maybe that, that impression starts to fade, but thinking back to that blogging era, you know, I think, I think of that. And I think to the extent that that continues to this day, I think of like that model that Rachel Held Evans did as a more stereotypically male model where they're, you know, writing these long things. It's right. very text heavy. There's not a lot of pictures. And so they, when they are engaging with fans, it's less or readers or whatever you want to call them in the comments or, or whatever format. It's less about you as the person. Whereas if, if even if again, you have this great substantive caption on your Instagram selfie, Half or more of the comments are going to be like, you look so good, queen. And so if you want to like respond to people and like thank them for following you, then it's at that level because that's what they're giving you to work with. Right. And so I think it inevitably becomes more personal. Like um, I'm sure many of your readers will know Liz Bruning. She just released um, Atlantic Edition's book of several of her essays and is literally called On Human Slaughter. And it, and you know, it's like her death penalty reporting. <laughs> like you can't yeah. get a more serious you book title than that. Yeah, exactly. And she yeah. posts, she posts about the release on Instagram, and a lot of the comments are like, "Yes, like congrats, Queen," and like, you know, I mean, what's she gonna do? That's what people are, are answering to her. So, is she gonna reject that? No, I mean, she's, uh, you know, much more offline than she used to be on Twitter. But like, what do you do? You say thank you.
1: Yeah. Yeah, there's a little bit of medium is the message uh, yeah. stuff going on here, right? Where like just the the form of Instagram including the algorithm we also we like to blame the algorithm and and I'm sure the actual companies hold some culpability for algorithmic decisions that they make, but all of it's their algorithmic decisions in us. exactly yeah. are about yeah. increasing human time on the site and we yeah. tell them what we want and what we'll stay on Instagram for. And yeah. then they put that into the algorithm. So yeah. it is like, at least at the collective level, it it is, it's more on us than it is on them. Next up is family pictures, preferably of your beautiful children. Uh, you know, this is like, I think of this as like, I don't know, the Martha Stewart, like Oprah magazine sort of kind of, kind of thing here. I mean, I like seeing cute kids. That's fun. Uh, But what's going on here and what's what's Christian about it? Is there a specifically Christian angle here in terms of, you know, the Christian publishing world?
0: I think there's a whole mix of things. And I I would not at all want to suggest that like any one specific writer is going hard on one of these motivations over the other. Um, I think some of it is just like a a simple blurring of the boundaries of public and private and people, Mm -hmm. you know, love their kids and they want to share pictures of them. And it's easy to forget that you're not just sharing it to your friends and family. Now you're sharing it to your suddenly large following. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you post just like you would if it were, you know, your private Facebook or or your little like 200 follower Instagram five years ago. So I think some of it is that in Christian spaces specifically, and I, I don't think this is. Deliberate or conscious in most cases, but I think that there is maybe some sense of like trying to show that you're doing it all. I always feel like, uh, you know, think of Liz Lemon. um, I could have had it all. But, you know, that, yeah, you're out here writing books as a woman, like you very clearly have a career, a career that you care a lot about. But look, you're not neglecting your family. Like you are still doing all the things that, you know, you should be doing as a, you know, faithful, responsible Christian wife and mother. Yeah. I mean, I I think that that there is still some some pressure, again, maybe not even that people realize what they're feeling, but some pressure to signal that.
1: Yeah. Finally, we have the idea of letting people in, quote unquote. Uh, This is probably similar a little bit to the blurring of the lines. Mm -hmm. Um, You were talking about it as like a like I like you saying five years ago before Mm -hmm. we sort of had calcified all these kind of norms of public figures on social media that that seem more. Established Now, is there anything else going on, though, about like vulnerability or, mm-hmm. or something like that?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's related to sort of like the personal essay mania, which has kind of died down, but personal essays and then at the book length memoirs, I think both of those are genres that are very associated with women. And so, you know, you think about, am I going to write a memoir, which touches on my life and some serious issue, or am I going to write just a book straightforwardly about that serious issue? And mm-hmm. often many women will write for them up the memoir format. And I mean, with good reason, memoirs are incredibly popular. I remember when I was shopping a flexible faith, I went to the festival, of, festival of faith and writing up at um, Calvin in Michigan, annual event, basically for people who want to write books. This was, I think, 20 14 or 2016 everyone was a buzz about memoir. people like publishers were launching new imprints just for memoirs it was all memoir and so yeah it's hugely popular and it's popular you know for very intelligible reasons um but the fact that that is associated with women um you know it's it's not just let's hear what bonnie thinks about this issue it's let's hear what bonnie thinks about this issue and how it's affected her own life and what her feelings are and you know, what is sort of her inner angst about this topic? And like, she's going to walk us through her whole emotional process. Um, and I think that that is, uh, again, something that is just more expected of and associated with women than with male authors. It makes me think
1: of reality TV and the like Mm -hmm. straight Mm -hmm. to camera, confessional confessional interview Mm -hmm. stuff. And we, we like to make reality TV a punching bag. I think sometimes for good reason. It's also like, I, I heard the other day, it's something like 70 or 80 percent of the hours of television watched in the United States are not necessarily reality, but there's some category of sort of like low attention requirement, which is mm-hmm. mostly reality TV. It's it's mm-hmm. dating shows or house yeah, renovation like shows. You
0: have to keep track
1: of. Exactly. Yeah. So even Yellowstone, which is watched mm-hmm. by rural in rural America, would not count in that. Right. Mm-hmm. That's like mm-hmm. high engagement or or mm-hmm. uh CSI is like you, you're supposed to be paying attention. Yeah, you got to gotta track. Plot. Yeah, you got to track it. But 80% or something like that is people watching reality TV that's on constantly. Mm -hmm. And so you got to wonder, again, that reflects something about human beings. Like we told TLC that that's what we wanted more of and Bravo and all that stuff. And we've rewarded them for making that kind of content. Do you think that's related to this sort of letting people Because that's also associated with a female audience.
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think there's a lot of similar themes of like, it's, it's a, it's a false, but still sometimes pleasant feeling of intimacy. Like they're talking Mm. to you. Um, you feel like you get, you're getting to know a quote unquote real person. Um, you know, obviously there's like a huge degree of artifice, but it doesn't necessarily feel that way, especially as you're like, you know, cleaning your kitchen at the same time or whatever the idea that we have a crisis of loneliness is very well known by this point. But um, you know, if you're lonely, yeah, I I totally see the appeal of like a a writer be that in on social media or in their memoir or what have you, who, who is quote letting you into her life, especially if her life, life looks dope.
1: Yeah. Then it's like, cause we all want to be, we want to have dope lives. But even the other day, like I, uh, I posted a very brief like episode, like a 10 minute solo episode that I did off the cuff uh, called the Israel Palestine conflict is not evidence for the end times. Mm. And I listened back to it as it went out that next morning. And I was actually like, as a listener to myself, even I was like, this sounds really refreshing to me. Like mm. I I kind of made myself laugh and surprised myself a couple of times at how angry I was getting <laughs> because, because I have a history of, of trauma healed now uh, mm-hmm. But I have this history of trauma around end times teachings. Mm. And I was real. I didn't set out to kind of be as, I don't know, but but it ended up being kind of a fun listen. And it's stuff that I've said before. So I'm I'm very comfortable being public about it. It is like, mm-hmm. it's the reason for my, my research. Not some big
0: reveal. Yeah.
1: No, there's no big reveal there, but it was more confessional. I didn't even plan it that way. It ended up that way. But I, I think that there is a way to do that that actually feels genuine. It felt, it felt genuine to me listening back to it. Hmm. Maybe in part because it wasn't intended that way. I don't, I don't Mm -hmm. know. Maybe you Mm -hmm. can't, maybe you can't do it on purpose or something. Yeah. But I just, I do get that. Like I, like I was like, oh, I think people will find this engaging. I'm finding Mm -hmm. it engaging. And I just said it yesterday. And it's me, me, you know, (laughs) in a way that I don't find other episodes, hearing myself talk, engaging in the same way.
0: I think you're onto something there. I think that there's a difference between sort of that, that, real spontaneous passion for a topic um that that creates that sense of of letting someone in just in its own right and there's a big difference between that happening on occasion like when the the topic comes up when the time is right versus churning it out day in and day out because if you don't do daily posts uh you know you you start losing out in the feed
1: If you love this podcast, if you find it helpful, I would love if you would consider joining the Patreon campaign. It is $7 a month, and it includes two, usually three, exclusive episodes per month for patrons only. It also includes ad-free episodes that sometimes even have a little bit more conversation in them that gets cut out of the main feed. And it includes access to the patron-only Facebook group. This seven bucks a month uh, helps us pay for work from Kristen and Josh, as well as putting my own time into the show. I also love getting feedback from patrons of the show, questions to answer in question and answer episodes, and all kinds of just information from you guys, responses, feedback to help us make this thing better. And I just, I love, frankly, I love interacting Uh, with people in the Patreon community. Most of that happens on Facebook, but I also will comment on posts on the Patreon app. And you get, through Patreon, you get this special feed that you can put into your regular podcast player that allows you to hear those patron-only episodes. You don't even have to go anywhere weird to hear them. It's all right there. It's very simple. And you can feel good. You can feel real good about supporting (laughs) something basically DIY. This is something that we make ourselves. We're not connected to any corporation or company. uh, And it's just very, very appreciated. If you sign up for a full year, you also get something like two months free. So that's another option. If you know you're going to be here for a while, you can also at any time go in and change to that, even if you are a regular monthly patron at this time. Okay, enough of me jabbering and asking for money. It's not comfortable to do. Um, but I do truly, truly appreciate it. Okay, back to the episode. Quick little side question here for you and also listeners, uh, female listeners. Um, please email me if you have an anecdote or, or an answer to this question. You have permission podcast at gmail.com. That's always in the show notes. Is there also like a female Christian reader or female Christian listener that basically this media is targeting and even sort of teaching to be this way? I I wonder if listeners feel ever feel like they're being kind of pandered to in that way or expected to engage with stuff in a certain way. Or if they feel, yeah, like, geez, like, this is not for me. Like, obviously, I know who this is for. It's not me. It's supposed to be for me because I'm a woman. Uh, and I, I'm just curious, like, how what that's like on the not the the maker of the content, but the receiver of the content. You know, you also read and and view and listen to things, Bonnie. So I don't I don't know if you have any thoughts about that.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I think so. I, I heard, and I, I don't know if these numbers are accurate, but my my sense is that they're at least in the ballpark, that there's something of an 80-20 rule in Christian publishing. And I think I think it was actually in publishing more generally, which is that like most of the books are written by men. Um, so it's like 80-20 male or something on that side of things, but most books are purchased by women. Um, and, you know, the purchaser is not necessarily the reader, but still yeah. we're thinking about who's making the, the purchase. So, yeah, I mean many, many women are readers in this country. Many readers are women. And yeah, there's a, they're like Christian women's living as a whole genre. And I think we all know what these books are. You can tell it by just glancing at the cover design. Um, it's, it's the fonts, it's the, well, less so now, but especially like in the early 2000s, lots of like princess tropes. Um, <laughs> I think some of that has chilled out. Like I I don't yeah. think, and, and maybe I'm, this might, you know, maybe I'm just out of touch with what people are buying because I'm not buying these books, but even, even allowing for that, I think there's a lot of books that are, are geared towards women. Like I think about Tish Harrison Warren, her first book, Liturgy of the Ordinary. I think that is, was read by many men I mean, it was read by many people it was a very successful book yeah and I would not classify that as something that was really explicitly marketed to women like I don't think that was, that was a women's book but like the cover imagery of like the PB and J you know I mean yeah. it's leaning towards mom making lunch yep. um, and not so much so that it would turn anyone anyone off but there is a signal there. And which is interesting when you think about, you know, Warren is a Anglican priest, like she's not just making lunch. She's got some other stuff going on. (laughs) Yeah. So I I don't know. I, I don't feel like I could accurately speculate how how the average Christian woman reader feels about these things. I think, in, you know, we've been talking about market signals in terms of algorithms, but there's market signals to publishers too. And so I imagine there must be a lot of women who, who do enjoy those books or they wouldn't keep making them. Um, those, you know, very explicitly, these are for women, Christian women. Um, and I, I find it so interesting that that continues to be a distinct genre to a degree that I don't think you see for men. I mean, there are absolutely Christian men's books, Wild at Heart being like the, the right. giant of the genre. I could be wrong about this, but I'm like 99% sure that if you go on Amazon, there's like a Christian women's category in a way that there's not a Christian men's category. And so I don't know. I I, I struggle to render like a single judgment on that because on the one hand, it feels like a good thing, of like, you know, historically. Throughout church history, there are going to be fewer women's voices in print. There's going to be fewer Mm -hmm. stuff written by and for women, and so that feels like a positive corrective. On the other hand, at least when I personally go there, I don't see a lot that I want to read. But again, you know, I went to seminary. I'm not the average reader in the market, so maybe my opinion is not super relevant.
1: Well, you're not the average female Christian reader, and you're not the average female Christian writer. Uh, You are an actual female Christian writer, but you're not a (laughs) quote- Female Christian writer unquote, and you come up with uh, some of the differences, which I'll I'll just run through and, and have you talk about them here in in your essay. You don't write about feminine topics. W- what are feminine topics? I, I mean, we've talked about home homemaking, raising kids. Mm-hmm. What else would you add to that?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's that kind of stuff. But I would say more broadly, it's like about the fact of being a Christian woman, um, and you know oh. that can go in a lot of directions. Like it can be more about like. Um, you know, how you relate to God as a woman or, or some of those different roles. And I would even include like, you know, um, career stuff. Like it doesn't have to be sort of like stereotypically traditional stuff. Um, but, but topics that are about womanhood to one in one way or another. And then, yeah, anything to do with like, like parenting and family and kids often tends to be quite gendered. If it's not about fatherhood, it's mostly for moms.
1: Yeah. Interesting. Well, that and especially in a Christian market, it's hard to know what all the causes are. But the type of people who buy religious books are socially conservative, by and large. For the most part, probably, right? Yeah. They're middle or right leaning, mm-hmm. um, because left leaning people buy different kinds of books. They buy books about social justice. They buy books mm-hmm. about you know whatever whatever, <laughs> whatever, whatever we buy books about, I guess, you know, and, and so there's, there's some of that going on where it maybe the culture and, and the personality type and all that stuff is sort of driving the content. You mm-hmm. also, you don't share your kids' faces online. This is something that like my wife and I have talked about a little bit. Like I don't do, I don't leave anything up public with my son's face or at least I try not to. Mm-hmm. Some people put like smiley faces over their kids' faces Mm-hmm. I haven't really spent a lot of time thinking about privacy and, and children and all that stuff. But mm-hmm. if you have any thoughts about that, I'd, I'd be really curious.
0: I do have so many thoughts. Um, that is okay. actually, I mean, it, it has implications for my career, but it's not a career decision. Okay. So I don't do the smiley faces because I don't like the aesthetic of it. So that's like a huge. Yeah, okay. Um okay. But we don't do the faces. So we, we post, we, we have three kids. We've posted one, one face photo at birth and then that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, I do post photos with like backs of heads. Um, You know, you can see that they're still alive. Uh, They're growing. (laughs) Um, But yeah, we don't post the faces and I don't, I don't have names in public. And the great bulk of that is really just about like kids are going to be adults one day and they are, you know, people. And um, right now they're too little to understand. Like my oldest, uh, our twins are four. They're too little to understand, you know, what the internet is and what are the ramifications of having your face out there. Um, and having, you know, like Facebook be able to identify you, um, before you're even old enough to have an account and suggest a tag. Um, and just by, by chance of history, whether to participate in this stuff was something that like a decision I was able to make, um, pretty much as a, as a young adult, but as an adult, Mm -hmm. um, and that's a decision we want them to be able to make as adults as well. Um, and so granted, like what I do for a living does make this a heightened question. Um, not that I have a huge following. I don't, but I have, you know, more strangers floating around in there than the average person. Um, and so that is an extra layer of concern. But I think our decision would be the same if I, you know, worked in a dentist's office. And so, you know, I I have a lot of friends, very, I have very few friends who have the same policy, certainly with the same level of strictness. And I don't like judge them for that. But I don't think that, and you know, I understand the impulse. I understand the impulse to want to share what your, you know, your kids with your friends, but I just don't think that it's worth the trade-off and I'm not like hyper paranoid. You know, I don't think my kids are going to get abducted because I posted their pictures. I don't think that like their lives are going to be ruined, but just given that I, I do have this choice and that I have plenty of ways to privately give updates to close loved ones. And like, any of my friends know they can text me for photos or I'll add them to like our private iCloud album if they want. Like, why would I, why would I post them publicly? I don't, there's no reason for me to.
1: If you were trying to get a more lucrative popular level book deal. (laughs) Well, yes,
0: maybe that they are very, very beautiful.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Another thing that's different. You you write about with your readership is is your readership is more male. And -hmm. given that 80, 20 kind of rule that you just brought up, Does that make you a kind of a unicorn? Yeah,
0: I've really, really done the wrong thing here. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I don't have any firm data to say. I would say my impression purely anecdotally is that female writers and and I would I think this is in in secular spaces as well. Female writers tend to have more female readers um, and they're. There is a, a perception in, in my observation in the publishing world that many male readers will not read women. I mean, you know, there's even that famous story about uh, like why J.K. Rowling's writing as J.K. and not Joanne. It's because. Oh, was I didn't realize that. that. Yeah, that mm. she was writing a book about a boy and that boys would not want to read a book about a boy written by a woman. And so that people could assume just at that level of the quick cover scan in the bookstore that it was a man. And that was what they wanted to be assumed.
1: Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure once once it was popular, that doesn't seem to have been issue. But but starting out
0: when you don't have the audience yet, right? Yeah, and so I mean, I think a lot of the like predominantly male nature of of my audience is about the topics that I tend to cover. I think foreign policy is a a big thing that is mostly read by men. Theology, less biased, but still some. Yeah, I, I mean, those are probably the two biggest that have the greatest gender imbalance.
1: Are you worried about being pigeonholed as a writer, um, either short format, long format? Like, is that something that you, to the extent you're comfortable talking about, kind of your behind the curtain thinking, and Mm -hmm. I recognize it's fine if you don't want to talk about it, but like, is that a, a factor in your decision making as you kind of decide what to write about, plan your career, or has it worked out pretty organically that way?
0: Yeah, I mean, at the book level, I would say yes, um, like I'm, I'm tentatively interested in in doing a third book project, exploring like why it feels so difficult for people to decide to have kids. Um, mm. And I'm thinking about like, you know, primarily in the States, but you could also look at the broader and like Western and, and upper income world where we have like this world historic health and wealth, it, you know, we are not not having kids because we're like subsistence farming. And yet, why are we not having kids, right? Yeah. Um, and, and I, you know, choose the word feel cause it is, it is really about how it it feels hard, um, in a way that I think, you know, this was not a question people were at like, should I have children was not a question people were asking this a hundred years ago. Right. Um, in the way that we do now, but that's a book about kids, book about family. Yeah. Bonnie, as a woman. <laughs> yeah. Right. Tell me about that.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: right? I yeah, would be exactly. hyper vigilant about like cover design questions like, and, and marketing and, and like you know, cause that is a book that I would want men to read also. Absolutely. Um, That's, that is out. a
1: perfectly 50, yeah. 50 question. It, 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 I mean, at least yes. along my Well, yeah, <laughs> but I mean, even like in, in, even my circles, like I have a handful of friends mm-hmm. who will maybe defer to one partner or the other. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't get the, I mean, some of my like very progressive male friends will say, mm-hmm. well, it's her body, it's her mm-hmm. birth process. But almost everybody's like, this is a conversation we have together about like, if we want to do this or not. Right. So that is very much like a live question for my male and female friends, I would say equally.
0: Yeah. I don't say that I have concerns about this, like to reflect poorly on my, my publisher or any potential publisher, like no one is pushing me in that direction in any explicit way or or any deliberate way. But like, as a woman, especially with a, a Christian context, writing about something to do with kids and family that is coded as like, this is a book for ladies. Um, and that is, you know, I, I don't want to write books just for ladies. Nothing wrong with books for ladies. It's just not me. And so, yeah, I mean, that is something I think about. Um, I think, and especially at that book scale, right. Where, you know, I, I'm churning out, you know, dozens, hundreds of articles a year. It, it's very different. Like what just has sort of happens to get in the mix organically in terms of what's in the news and where my interests are going at any given moment. But at that book scale where you have like, okay, here's three data points. One of them is about this, like that's a, that's a big portion at that, at that scale. So yeah, it's something I think about, uh, and I think it's not impossible to do, um, to write as a woman on topics like that in a way that, you know, will not be perceived or actually function as a turnoff to male readers. Um, but it's not something that you can just sort of probably stumble into, right? You have to kind of deliberately think about how will this work.
1: You write about theology as well as foreign policy and other topics, and I want to kind of bring complementarian theology into this conversation and kind of see what role you think it's playing. And I'll, I'll define my terms since I am trying to make this episode a popular, not not a highbrow <laughs> or scholarly episode, to go back to Brad's category. So complementarian theology is the, the the standard in historical Christian theology. I would say it's certainly been the more popular one, that God made men and women distinct from each other uh, to have different roles and responsibilities. Yes. I'm aware of the ways in which that, that has been historically reinterpreted in various ways at various times. I like, I think Tony Jones said to me, I don't know if it was in person or on the podcast, like the reasons that people have been complimentary is not the same over time that mm. they've been complimentary is, is the same for most Christians over time. Of course I'm not, I, I'm an egalitarian. I think that men and women have exactly the same uh, possible roles and giftings and whatever parts to play in, in God's, in God's kingdom. But that's, that's big and all, all conservative Christianity in the United States is complementarian. I think it's safe to say um, may, with, Oh, I guess maybe Foursquare, square uh, you, you might have, you might still consider that broadly conservative, and they ordain women, but basically mm-hmm. almost everybody who is conservative does not ordain women. They, they have complementarian uh, leanings, if not explicit commitments like, like most Baptist denominations. Mm-hmm. So how, how much is that going on in the specific Christian context, right? There's some things we've, we've said that have secular publishing correlates, some that don't. How do you, what do you see as the role of complementarian theology?
0: I mean I would say the for me at least the biggest way and you know I consider myself an egalitarian as well the the biggest way that it affects my thinking it, it probably connects to what I was saying about sort of that that signaling that you're still you know doing all the wife and mother stuff mm-hmm. which is to say that you know many of my readers are are undoubtedly complementarians and I still want them to read me um sure. and so obviously I'm not going to like dissemble about my position on this question. But if, you know, I'm already baking a nice loaf of bread, and I post that, and because I like to bake, and it makes them think a little better of me in that regard, I guess I'm not sad about that. I don't know, like, it's, it's messy, right? Like, there are, there are multiple motivations at play. But I, I think that desire to speak to as broad of an audience as possible. Um, and so if there are ways that you can you know, sort of be friendly to people across that divide without compromising principles. That's sort of what happens.
1: Do you think that you're writing on theology? Maybe maybe not a flexible faith because that's, it's almost like a a resource book, right? It's Mm -hmm, like a, mm -hmm. it's, you're not doing your own constructive theology, not much anyway. I I know you give your, You give your kind of two cents at the end of each chapter, but
0: yeah, not even on every chapter, just a few.
1: So you're mostly just kind of laying groundwork, groundwork, right? Yeah. Or laying out the, the sort of field with your other writing on theology though, maybe the shorter form stuff, if people are complementarian, aren't they just not going to read a woman doing any sort of theology or.
0: Mm, I don't think that's true because there's, are you familiar with, um, I want to say it was Wayne Grudem, but I may be wrong about that and I don't want to definitively attribute it to, to him if I'm wrong, but I think it was him. There's this list from uh, maybe 20 years ago. It's like an 80 item list. It's very long and it's like things that people can do in churches and he has them ranked in terms of like appropriateness for women to do it. Um, it's quite a project. doesn't surprise me. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating read just thinking sure. about like, yeah. I mean, in a sense, I appreciate like the attempt at clarity, um, yeah. but yeah. But what that highlights and, you know, not every complementarian is so he, he ranks it in terms of like levels of like pastoral authority, basically. And there's like a cutoff of like, this is the line for me. Not every complementarian is going to do the cutoff at the same place. Right. And there's also, you'll sometimes hear complementarians talk about like, you know, it's okay for me to read a book, even a book about theology written by a woman, but she can't get up in the pulpit because it has to do with like her, her personal presence, um, and there, right. I, I'll, I'll look it up after we're done talking and see if I can send it to you for the show notes. But I want to say that there is a, a quote from, again, it might be Grudem or Piper, someone very big in that world that talks about like this sense of like the personal presence, um, in the pulpit. And so it's going to vary by person. I'm sure there are guys who are complimentary and who would say like, I'm not going to read a woman on theology. Yeah. Um, absolutely. But I think for, for most people, there's more murkiness or more of like a sliding scale.
1: I have to remind myself that that is how progress is made. If my, <laughs> if my vision of progress is, is accurate, right? Like that there were people who were willing to end slavery, but not willing to have their white daughters, marry black men, uh, for, for maybe a hundred years, you know, there Fair were kind of people ending in slavery that is Yeah. Still good. Yes. And then eventually now basically nobody believes that one anymore either. And that it's a, it doesn't happen as quickly as we would like. And, and so to me, there's a kind of a, my emotional reaction is that there's a real futility to finding yourself on, on the complementarian scale. And, but the reality is people are born into contexts. They have various experiences, they grow and uh, they don't choose where they start. They can make choices that affect where they end. And so I need to practice my own grace, but maybe <laughs> maybe just giving voice to the frustration of some listeners, even just not with what you're saying, but just with the topic yeah. on the whole and, and feeling, you know, are we still having these conversations in 2023? That that kind of a uh, that kind of a feeling, which is understandable.
0: Yeah. My thinking is that if, if someone has gotten to the point, especially of like say following me on some yeah. social media platform or signing up for my Substack or buying my book. That they are, you know, listening with a certain amount of receptivity and, um, you know, it's, it's worth engaging with them and, and insofar as is possible engaging with them where they are in a in a way that they can accept and receive.
1: I 100% agree. And when I'm at my best, I am I'm completely <laughs> on board with that. I, I I do genuinely believe that is the best, if not only real way for public figures to make a dent, mm. um, you know, individual Friends and, and acquaintances can obviously do other things by,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, leveraging their actual real life relationships with people. But for those of us who don't know, the the readers, the listeners or whatever, like we have to be respectful, meet people where they're at. Uh, and we also ha- we also would do well to remember the times in our lives when we didn't believe what we current believe and we weren't committed to the justice commitments we are currently committed to. And what what got us there? What What kind people who didn't judge us. Like very few of us changed our minds based on a whole lot of judgment being hailed down by someone who saw themselves as holier than us.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I was a complimentarian through college. So yeah.
1: yeah. Well, Bonnie, always great to talk to you. So, so great. Uh, we'll link to this article and everything else that you've done and we've done together in the show notes. And Yeah, just thank you for sharing your perspective on this. It's just always great to have you on.
0: Yeah, thank you for having me. Always great to be here.